found him a little bit of a kind of an in-your-face. I'm, you know, I, I didn't find him likable, lovable. Oh, this poor little sweet boy is, you know, been killed. I, I felt kind of like, oh, good, got rid of him. I, oh, I don't know. Maybe I'm just really person. cynic. But <laughs> you're such a heartless person. This is Movie Bite, a weekly show where we discuss, praise, lament, or lampoon movies, TV shows, culture, and more. Today is Wednesday, January 2nd, 2013. I'm your host, TJ Draper, and I'm joined by my awesome co-host, Joe Darnell. Why, thank you. I'm feeling awesome. This is 2013, and I can't wait for, oh, a whole new year's worth of awesome films. What do you think, TJ? Can we do it another year? I think we can. You know what's funny, though, it being 2013, uh, I have a script which I modify every week to read the show opener, and uh, it says January 2nd, 2012. I had to edit it in my head on the fly. (laughs) (laughs) Good job. I hate it when that happens. (laughs) Oh, it'll be be three or four months before I start typing 2013. Well, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thank you. Now, how how is the New Year treating you? Uh, It's going... Okay, I've really, today is the first day I've really dived in. I uh, had a long drive home from visiting the relatives yesterday, 10 actual mm. driving time hours, so it was more like an 11 and an, or 11 and a half hour trip by the time you factor in kids going to the bathroom, stopping for lunch and dinner, stopping for gas and all that stuff. Oh, uh, none of the worst. Oh, yeah, so we had a lot of fun on the trip, but not necessarily on the drive. How about you? I, I cannot complain. I, I just had a blissful holiday and i had a lot of vacation days racked up and i had to use them so i took a considerable chunk of time off and it was just super refreshing i'm so glad i could do it too i you know i caught up more on uh, star trek you should be proud of me um, okay where, where are you at i'm about halfway through uh, uh season three of Isn't the season next generation three so much fun i i will say that I am still not a Trekkie by watching it, and ah. I, I I enjoy it for what it is. To me, it's just another show, but I think that season three is obviously better than seasons one and two. It's so, so much better and so much fun. I, I, I can see why you're into it. I can see the attraction. It's a good show. It's fun. Well, you know what? I was going to mention... Um, we, we're not really planning to talk much about Star Trek today, but... Uh, did you want to mention anything about the Star Trek news? You you have uh, a couple of interesting pieces there. I, I didn't put it in the side items, but did you want to bring it up? Well, when you're talking about Star Trek news, I I only posted one thing today. It's not really news. It was just fun. You're talking about the evolution of the Enterprise video? Yeah, no, that, that looked inter- interesting, but I haven't watched it yet. Okay. I have it in my well, queue. Well, I don't think it'll be interesting unless you're a Trekkie, and... Uh, I know some people have already complained to me about how much Trek stuff has been on Movie Bite, and I'm sorry, I can't help it. But um, what's unique about this isn't so much just the, the you know Star Trek as an you know isolated piece of film, but it's interesting because I love film craft and I enjoy the making of stuff, even if I don't you know I'm not like head well, over heels about something. I don't know if this is the making of as much as it is just looking at the different designs of the Enterprise herself and how much she's evolved and changed over time and what's driven those decisions, whether they're and they talk about what dro- what they think drives the the change in the universe and maybe what drove the change in reality. So it's that sort of, it's very much of a fan thing. So you may or may not oh, okay. enjoy it. But no, I'm I, sure I will. I enjoyed looking at the different various uh, designs of the Enterprise. And of course they start mm. in the chronology of the universe 
of Star Trek. So it's not necessarily the chronology that we saw the actual ships designed. It, it's always made for a little bit of continuity issues by going back and doing the the series Star Trek Enterprise, which happened before Kirk. Mm. Uh, but, you know, it, in any event, I thought it was a lot of fun to watch this video. That is so, very interesting. Now, I'll, you know, I, I thought that this would be a perfect little segue into our first topic for today, actually. A, a very interesting little side item is a Roger Ebert's um, assessment of 2012 films. Now, do you know what Ebert's assessment of the 2012 films have to do with Star Trek? Um, I, I guess because Argo uh, had to do with a sci-fi plot, not necessarily with Star Trek. Is that what you're referring to? I'm just taking a wild guess here. Uh, is more specific than that. Okay, here this was just a fun little piece of trivia, and I thought we'd mention this along the way. One of the reasons why I am inclined to agree with uh, Ebert at, that uh, Argo is probably the best film of 2012 is because I haven't seen a film about Hollywood filmmaking and history involving the CIA that was as lifelike and just uh, meaningful, heartfelt, as this one. And I can't say that there have been that many of the films of 2012 that impacted me this way because I knew Argo, yes, it is a fictionalized version of a piece of uh, real history. But even so, I think it was very respectable to the history. And one of the things that Argo really achieved for me was what it did with the character named John Chambers, played by John Goodman. Now, John uh, Goodman, I thought he did a fabulous job. You, you had reservations about his performance, but he was playing a guy named John Chambers. John Chambers was a costume and makeup artist in Hollywood. And in the story of Argo, C the CIA goes to him for help to uh, give some uh, these CIA agents secret identities. And... I, I don't know what to what extent it, it actually unfolded in the film, but the film was reflecting things that actually happened. And there was a real John Chambers, and he was really responsible for a lot of film um, makeup art design. Do you know, TJ, that John Chambers, the real John Chambers, was responsible for the design of the Vulcan's ears? I did not know that. He, d he designed... The ears for Spock on the original television show. That seems Isn't like something awesome? I should have known. <laughs> I know. It's fabulous. I just love a little tri uh, trivia like that. But, and that goes back to my, what I was saying about the whole background on the Enterprise video. Y you shared that on moviebyte.com and it got me thinking, you know, I love just the culture mashup that this is. That you don't have to be really into Star Trek to appreciate the artists behind it and what they were doing and the ingenuity involved. I just love the melting pot of culture here because on one end of the spectrum you have the the huge franchise that is star all things star trek and then you have um this film argo that just you know has really cool little connection to that uh, via the you know the man that was john chambers and i love little behind the scenes stories like this yeah and let me apologize to those listening live. I'm sorry you have to endure a little bit of poor audio quality. Skype seems to be acting up a little bit. I don't know if you can tell it on your end, Joseph. Uh, I can understand you, but it's it's definitely very poor quality. And uh, I don't know what can be done about that. I, I had a little trouble. I was recording a podcast earlier today, and I was having a little trouble with Skype as well. So Skype seems to be acting up today. 
That's funny. I wonder if it's actually heard on the on the playback because you sound totally fine to me. I, yeah. I haven't heard any hiccups. Okay. Well, it's not a hiccup. It's just the audio quality is more that of a phone. So. Huh. Anyway. Uh, all right. So yeah. Now the um, there was a few other films on uh, his list as well. Several of which I didn't recognize. <clears throat> Excuse me. Several of which I didn't recognize. Some of which I have recognized but not seen. Yeah, you're talking about Roger Ebert's uh, collection of films for 2012. I am. Okay. I am. We, you know, I, I, I by the way, I, I don't disagree. I, I don't have a problem with him naming Argo as the top film of 2012. I personally didn't think it was the top film of 2012, but I can see how it could be called that. I don't have a problem with that assessment because it was a fine film. He also lists Life of Pi, which you would probably take a little more issue with maybe. Although I, I really think it's a clever film. It's one I plan to watch again at least once, and I'll probably talk about it with many other people to try and get them to watch it. I, I just I can't say I'm convinced it's one of the top three, but it's definitely an ex, it's an exceptionally well-made film. Now, now I think that you should see it. Oh, I probably will. I'll probably wait yeah. for the uh, home video release. There's just too many movies to watch. Of know? course, if yeah, if but if you're yeah, if you're not going to see it in 3D on an IMAX screen, then totally wait for home entertainment. There's no reason to watch it otherwise. Yeah, and uh, you know, if you're interested in catching up a little bit more and and somebody actually evaluating really deeply uh, the film, uh, Michael uh, Minkoff and Eric Rauch on the first episode of the new Movieology podcast have talked about it and. Though I didn't completely agree with everything they said, they they did a fine job. So make sure you check that out. Um, so that's you know it, he has on here. Ebert has on here uh, end of watch, which I haven't seen. It didn't look like it would be that good to me, but I, I talked about I that with um, some friends who did see it, and they discouraged me from going to see it. I, I kind of thought it looked interesting. What I hear is that it was kind of like a docudrama, only right. Docu- that's that's <laughs> right. why I thought it didn't look very interesting. Well, what the general audience was telling me was that they felt like it was ultimately a downer, and that really just kind of killed it for them. So, I, I don't know. I, I generally am not interested in docudramas, and then I I kind of cared about the actors in the film, so I thought I might give it a watch anyway. But then when I heard it was a downer, I was kind of like, eh. I, I don't know. Life is hard enough that I don't want to waste time watching movies that are downers. Yeah, and we'll probably catch it on home video and talk about it some other time. So anyway, oh, and his number three I missed was uh, Lincoln. We won't talk about all the top ten, but uh, Lincoln, you know, it's I can see how somebody would put it, you know, in the third place. And it was in mm. my list, too, speaking of. Yeah. So I made a list of best films of 2012 as well. And, uh, and it was a very good list. Yeah, very, uh, very good somebody list. in the comments took issue with me listing Snow White and the Huntsman, but... Uh, you know, to each his own. I I found Snow White and the Huntsman quite enjoyable. The thing that I found in making this list, you know, I hear a lot of people talking about how the movies of 2012, were, it was kind of a bad year for movies, and I thought, wow, I, I'd, I'd like to see what a good year looks like, <laughs> because I was having a hard time, and there were some that didn't make it into the list that I wish there was room for. Uh, it's like, well, they're all so good, and, and, and I really hated... Uh, I, and I'm not at all sure the film we're going to be talking about in a few minutes, Les Mis, uh, <laughs> not at all sure it's in the right place, but there were so many good films this year. Uh, boy, I just didn't know quite where to put everything. So I, you it, know. it is a tough call, and nobody wants to have to um, you know, start picking hairs and splitting hairs, I mean, <laughs> splitting hairs and <laughs> d- deciding 
Yeah, like in your case, you you give Lemus Rob um, ninth place on your top ten. I did, and that's not to say it was a bad film because there were lots of films that I wish were even on here. Mm. But uh, yeah, Les Miserables, ninth place. Now, <clears throat> I think what a lot of film critics would take issue with is the fact that I, um, <laughs> the fact that I listed the Avengers as number one, and it's a an action hero superhero movie, and I think a lot of critics would take issue with that. But well, you know, I think I, a lot of critics would take issue with you just for having an animated film on your top ten. True. But, I mean, don't you think it was deserving? Yeah, I do. I think that in retrospect, you know what's interesting? I was just glossing over your films on your top ten. Uh, only three of them, from what I can tell, were not action films you know, of any sort. You know, uh, yeah, for the most part, you have something in, in the way of an action film. I think there, that that's telling, you know. Um, action films these days generally are the more heroic stories that have a positive moral to them, or they have at least ways a a positive human interest story. And oftentimes, I can appreciate the, the plight of the critics, the general critics that can be very critical of action films, because they just see so many movies, and they're tired of the well-worn paths. Mm-hmm. And uh, like, for instance, going back to Roger Ebert, he mentioned in his article that he has seen over, he reviewed more than 300 movies from 2012 in 2012. And I thought we'd watched a lot of movies and we exactly. only did half the year. <laughs> exactly. And, and we only did half of the year and we only hit the, you know, the top picks. This guy was watching everything. So no wonder he is, you know, discouraged to yeah, and, come back and, to these films that seem very standard and very um, hype-driven or pop culture-driven. I'm, I'm not even sure I ever want to get to the point that Ebert is at of reviewing 300 films in a year. That's that's just crazy. It's crazy. That's 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 a, like a film a day, basically, with a few days skipped here and there. I think it's unhealthy. <laughs> it, it seems unhealthy. Yes. I mean, I thought a film a week was pushing it. Uh, you know, and, and it's sometimes hard to do. And there, there, as you know, as as we've had problems with the pod, on the podcast before, I've had weeks where I just didn't make it to the cinema. So, yeah. well, for um, me, in movies and TV shows are an excellent way to live life vicariously through a story when you couldn't possibly experience that story in life for yourself. But if you're watching, I mean, I think that's a good thing. That's a positive thing. But if you're watching this many movies, like a critic like this, I don't think. You have a life. You're you're just living life vicariously. That's what you do all all the time. Um, so, I, I, yeah, no wonder it's it's got it's got to skew um, some of his point of view. I mean, yeah. I, and I love Ebert. I, I think that he's very insightful, um, and it probably has a lot to do with how many movies he sees in a year. Yeah, and, and I do think Ebert is one of the better critics. There's some critics that I just can't stand. Ebert, I, I agree with him, and I, and I disagree with him all the time, but I uh, usually appreciate his perspective in any event. <clears throat> um, let me just, for the sake here of the podcast, um, w- list my top ten real quickly. Number one is The Avengers. Number two is The Dark Knight Rises. Number three is The Hunger Games. Number four is Argo. Number five is The Hobbit. Number six is Snow White and the Huntsman. Number seven is Wreck-It Ralph. Number eight is Skyfall. Number nine is Les Miserables. And number ten is Lincoln. And I know some people may take issue with me putting Lincoln that far down. Some people may take issue with me putting Lincoln on the list at all. So, 
so anyway, that's. Uh, do you take any issue with any of my listings there, Joe? Uh, um, I I didn't care for Snow White all that much, um, but I, I, right. I, I understand your point of view. Um, hmm. I don't know that I would have put the Hunger Games so high. I would have definitely had Argo ahead of the Hunger Games. And, may, and oh, yeah, definitely the Hobbit ahead of the Hunger Games. Oh, uh, I don't know. See, it was a highlight to me. Where the Hobbit was a highlight, but the Hunger Games a little more so. Yeah, it's also subjective. So It is, because when the Hunger Games came out, for one, it was like the best movie up to that time of 2012. There wasn't all that many good hits in the first half. It was a slow start to the year, for sure. Yeah. All right. You posted this nice little commercial um, for Monsters University's upcoming film. This isn't a trailer. This is a teaser, and it's an unusual TV spot because, like Pixar does these days, they like to flesh out their own little stories as though their things in their stories they fabricate were true life. Um, so Monsters University got a commercial promoting their school. Ah, uh, um. I actually thought that half of the commercial was pretty entertaining and the other half wasn't. What did you think? I I found it all entertaining. But I see I really like this type of marketing. It's it's not it's not direct on the nose marketing, which has a place. You know, I like a good trailer that really gets you into the plot. But this is the sort of thing uh, I don't know, and I linked to it in my article uh, on this as well. I don't know if any of you remember the uh, Toy Story 3 ads, and one of them specifically that I remember is the Google search ad, where you never see any of the toys, but you, you hear their voices and you see a computer screen and them typing in the Google search. It was just, it was, it was funny and hilarious, and uh, you knew, because you already knew, see, this works well when, you, when, when the, uh, the film or whatever product is being advertised is, already has mind share. And when it has great mind share, this sort of marketing is very endearing. And so I found the trailer very endearing because Monsters has a lot of mind share already. <coughs> so that's that's well, how I felt about it. I, I have to admit that I appreciate their gesture to to do this. I think it's all it's actually quite entertaining, and it builds up a great uh, sort of suspense about the story because they're fl- it seems to me that when they did Monsters Incorporated, they didn't really cue the audience in on clue the audience in on the specifics of the story until you went to see it. And the, during the film, they have a commercial for monsters, Inc, the company where Sully and Mike Wazowski's work, you know, but, but this commercial does the job for monsters. You that the commercial for monsters, Inc does in the monsters incorporated movie. <laughs> right. So, yeah, it's kind of like we just got a taste of something near the end of Act One, where Mike and uh, Sully might be uh, perched up in their dorm, and they they happen to see a video um, introducing the school to new students or something. Yeah, it, and for those that are uh, don't quite know what we're talking about, uh, you'll find the link to this in the show notes where you can watch the the uh, video. By the way, the show notes will be at moviebyte.com slash mbpodcast slash 25. Uh, but yeah, the, um, the video is an advertisement in the world of monsters for Monsters University. It's like a college advertisement. It's it's quite fun, I think. You, you didn't think it was quite as fun. I think it's quite fun. <clears throat> Um, well, it is what it is. I think, I think that, 
I think I just need to see one more trailer for Monsters University to to restore my faith. After okay. after after Brave, mm, it's pretty tough. Yeah, well, you know, the downward descent kind of started with Cars two for Pixar, and they're they're really they haven't shown us anything that that really says we're back on track. So right. I'm kind of hoping Monsters University will be that film that says we're back on track. That mm. that's you know that's where I'm at, and I'm. You know, how many hits has Pixar had compared to how many flops? I mean, you know, you got to give them a little bit of a break, you know? Yeah. Now, you know, um, do, do you care to move on to the next subject? Hansel and Gretel. Yeah, because see, here, this was another one that came out in just about the same time as the Monsters University commercial. A Hansel and Gretel TV spot. Now, if, if for those that don't know, Hansel and Gretel is called Hansel and Gretel colon Witch Hunters. And it stars, uh, what's his name? Um, Jeremy Renner. Jeremy Renner and Gemma Arterton. I don't know if I said that correctly, but. And um, other names in the film I, I don't especially know, but I am familiar with Famke Jensen. It's a, a sci-fi action th- thriller fantasy fairy tale with practically nothing to do with the original version of Hansel and Gretel. And I, uh, you said you're still you were looking forward to this a few months ago when the first announcements came out that it was going to be released. This film was filmed before the Avengers, and I don't know what the hangup was, but it was stalled. And then Jeremy Renner went on to become famous as the uh, the Arrow dude in right. um, the Avengers. And, but then now, this just seems like it's in poor taste uh, to Jeremy Renner's you know credentials. I thought I enjoyed him during Born Legacy as a spy that kind of subs in as the lead role in the, in the place of Jason Bourne. And I know a lot of people weren't crazy about that film. But obviously, the Avengers proves that the guy's got talent and he deserves to have some other, some other good films. So I just kind of hate to see this come out because I really don't think that this is going to be... Uh, this is going to be a disgrace. (laughs) I think it could go either way. I certainly think it's going to be one of those mindless action films to some extent. I don't expect the plot to be overly driving, but at the same time, it looks like it could be enjoyable. I I don't know. Um, I, you know, I, I certainly know that Jeremy Renner is a good actor, whether or not you like everything that he's been in. Uh, for instance, as you mentioned, um, uh, I, I, I was not a big fan of his work on the last Bourne movie. Not his work, but I wasn't a big fan of the movie, but you can't blame him for that. I thought his acting was fine. And uh, so I think, you know, and then you've got uh, Gemma Arterton, who's well-known, but uh, I've only seen her in Quantum of Solace. I don't know. I I just think it looks like it could be interesting. Have you seen Gemma in anything else? No, I haven't. Uh, I mean, not that I recall. (laughs) Again, it's just kind of a weird film. This film's coming out at the end of the month, January 25th. Right, which, not that the trailer is all that uh, interesting, it's just that it's a reminder, really, that it's coming out at the end of the month, and, uh, you know, I thought I, I saw the new trailer, I thought I'd post it, so. Hmm. Now, yeah, you know, see, the month of January is not one historically that's known for great movie releases. And that kind of makes me skeptical. The whole fact that this film was stopped after it was filmed and probably for the most part produced and all the post-production was done, it was still stalled. This film seems like it's going to fall into no man's land. And I'm willing to bet you it's just going to be a flop. 
Um, and not just because people aren't willing to go to the theaters right now. I think in spite of Jeremy Renner's good name, he's just not going to be a good film. It, it looks pretty sorry. Uh, I never heard of anything that the director had ever done before. Tommy Wercola. Um, other films he have done, he's done nothing, nothing cool, nothing impressive. So yeah, well, uh, again, it's just yeah. I think it, it could go either way. I mean, you got to remember too, Peter Jackson hadn't done that much that was any good before Lord of the Rings. True, and actually, Peter Jackson's record looked a lot like this director's. Exactly. So, <laughs> well, he did stuff like the Frighteners, you know. <laughs> yeah. So. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, we'll see. I, like I said, I'm willing to give it a chance. I think it looks kind of interesting. So, with that, I think we're ready to move on to Les Mis. All right. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm ready to talk about Les Mis, but um, just so you know, we want to get a special guest on this episode, and she's having some technical difficulties. Um, so, we will try to patch her in as soon as we can. In the meantime, TJ, why don't you introduce us to this movie? All right, well, Les Mis, uh, Les Miserables, um, it came out on December 25th, uh, so it came out on Christmas Day. I saw it the day after. Uh, it had a budget of $61 million. Opening weekend did $27 million. Uh, box office uh, worldwide so far is $129 million, so it's more than made its money back. Uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting concept, really, because Les Miserables started out as a book, and it became a stage play. A musical stage play, and there have been a couple of film adaptations. I am told by those who are uh, big Les Miserables fans, such as my wife, that none of the films have really been that great. And there is some dissent on that issue, but none of the films have really been all that great, right? And so, ah. Uh, I enjoyed a little bit of the one with Liam Neeson, but it felt like it had such a uh, an anticlimactic ending. It, it didn't really end the way that the book does. It doesn't end the way that the the play does, or the musical, and, and it just seemed like it was, uh, it was an unending way to end the story. But yeah. this film, like you mentioned, this film has been adapted. I mean, this story has been adapted so many times over, and, and wow! I mean, this is a big piece of uh, world culture, you know, and the whole world is looking onto this musical to see whether or not it can stand. One, the test of time, and two, whether it lives up to the good name of the story. Three, if it can appeal to American audiences as much as European audiences. I think that that's a big challenge because we have several uh, uh, American stars, European stars. I know that the director, uh, uh, Tom Hooper, did the King's Speech, and he did a fabulous job with that film last year. It won the Oscar for Best Picture in, uh, sorry, not last year anymore, for 2011 one best picture and uh kudos to him for that film and also for this undertaking uh the guy hasn't done musicals before and there there has never been a musical quite like this one you wanted to explain why yeah see the interesting thing about this uh and i guess i knew this and you didn't going in and i knew this because like i said my wife is a big lame as a rob fan and uh it, but it's the type of musical where almost every single line of dialogue is sung. There are maybe 10 lines that are actually spoken in this entire film because it is a pretty much a straight ad- adaptation of the play. And the play, it, every, every line is sung. So I'm sure we'll be talking about that in a moment, but it's not the type of musical that The Sound of Music is, just as an instance, 
where there's lots of spoken lines and drama, and then the actors break into song. That's not the type of film at all. The actors never come out of song in this type of musical. So uh, let's try to get Liz on the line. I see she's online now, uh, and uh, she's going to talk with us about this film. And so let's try to get her on the line. Shall we do that? Yes, let's do this. Hi, Liz. Hi. How are you guys doing tonight? Doing well. Well, we have just started talking about Les Mis. We, uh, I was given to understand you were having a bit of technical challenges, but hopefully those are all solved now. Yeah, same one here on this end. It's uh, it's not a good night for the tech, I guess. <laughs> I guess not. Skype is giving us plenty of issues, too. You guys are sounding pretty tinny. So uh, forgive us. Uh, that won't be the case when we post the podcast tomorrow, but for those listening live, there just appears to be nothing we can do about it. So... All right. So, Lay Miz, have you were you listening live by any chance, Liz? I was the entire time, except for the little uh, three minute spout I had with the technology. But uh, I've been here. Okay. So we just started talking about Lay Miz, uh, and uh, it's the nature of the musical. So uh, let's let's talk a little bit uh, about what we liked and didn't like about this film. But you know, before we do that, <clears throat> let's just I'm just going to read this uh, this uh, synopsis here. In December 2012, <clears throat> excuse me, technical challenges with my voice as well. In December 2012, <laughs> the world's longest-running musical brings its power to the big screen in Tom Hooper's sweeping and spectacular in- interpretation of Victor Hugo's epic tale. Set against the backdrop of 19th-century France, Les Misérables tells an enthralling story of broken dreams and unrequited love, passion, sacrifice, and redemption. A timeless testament to the survival of the human spirit. Jackman plays ex-prisoner Jean Valjean, hunted for decades by the ruthless policeman Javert. After he breaks parole, or after he breaks parole, sorry, there's, uh, Joseph, you need to clean this uh, up a little bit when you put it in here next time. Yeah, copy (laughs) editors always put in punctuation at the strangest places. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, when Valjean agrees to care for factory worker Fantine, am I saying that correctly? Is that right? Been over was, a week since. I thought it was pronounced Fontaine. Fontaine? Anyway. Uh, factory worker's young daughter, Cosette, their lives change forever. So, what uh, what did we like and not like about this film? Let's, let's, you know what, let's start with what we liked about this film. Now, TJ, did you already clarify why we wanted to have Liz on the show tonight? <laughs> well, um, I mentioned last week, and, and so did, uh, I, thought, I think you thought it was a good idea, too, that we needed a female presence uh, on this uh, podcast mm. for this particular film, and I think you agreed with that. Would you agree with that, Liz? Do we need we need a little help here? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't ever say you know guys can't understand girls, um, but there is a very strong female side to this. The the uh, utter shame, the lowness, and she's um, Fontaine's gotten down to the the very bare bones of the end of the world as she knew it um you kind of get the idea that she was probably from a a better lifestyle than what she ends up with and um cast out uh kind of you know she's at the bottom of her rope she's she's at the end of the line um is kind of a death sentence back then. I mean, if you didn't die of disease, you were going to die from people throwing rocks at you. Um, so, so there's a very strong mother's um, mother's intuition of just you know I have to take care of my daughter no matter what I have to do. I have to take care of my daughter. A uh, very strong female side of of an emotion there. Um, and and then you know when it gets into Cosette and. Um, Especially uh, Impamine's uh, attitude towards, and I don't know why I can never remember his name. What is his name? The boy. 
<laughs> oh yeah, um, Mo- that character's name Marion. Marius. Um, yes. There's that very strong. You know, she's she's gonna let him go. You know, she loves him, but she's gonna let him go because she realizes that's what's best for him. And and even sacrificing her life to save his. Um, it is a very strong kind of you know that female protective spirit. So. Um, there are you know, several I, unique women in this story, and it is it, it's it, it has a traditional love story, but then it also has other uh, you know subplots that obviously should interest women. And it, this is a musical. I mean, musicals were not created for guys. So. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. I've, I've I've been known to say in the past before that uh, I think musicals are fine. As far as they go, I don't personally like them that much, with the exception of The Sound of Music, which I do really like. But for the most part, I just I just don't care for musicals. And I know m- most of the uh, females in my life that I know, such as my wife uh, and, and many others, uh, like musicals. Like, just, as, if it's a musical, they like it. <laughs> so, and I, if it's a musical, I'm on I your side, like TJ. <laughs> okay, so, so you're one of the few, though, then, that, that don't. You know, and uh, because because we brought you in in the middle of the conversation, Liz, we didn't do a great job of introducing you because of the technical difficulties. Uh, you are Liz Darnell. Uh, this is this is Joseph's wife. So uh, it is good to have you on the podcast. Okay, so I, I, I tried well, to try to get to my here. wife interested, and she's just not interested in being on. The podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny. Um, I, I'll be honest with you that you know typically when when it comes to the musicals, Joe and I tend to be on opposite sides of the the typical traditional uh, gender roles. I tend to think yuck, and he's kind of like, oh, let's watch it. Um, <laughs> so so it's kind of fun to to see this because. Um, you know, I, I did understand that this version of Lemiz was going to be uh, the the musical, you know, more Broadway adaptation of um, of the story. I tend to come from more of the literary background of having read the books a long time ago. Um, you know, the anyway, I just getting around to the 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 idea of you know how was the music? You know, how is it watching a complete film completely sung? Um, I think there were about twelve words that I counted that weren't sung and i think most of them were thank yous (laughs) yeah (laughs) so it's a it's a very interesting adaptation um and and an enjoyable one i definitely think it's uh, it was a very epic film i think anne hathaway brought a lot to the table definitely Um, so so you liked it overall um yeah yeah I, i i would I would say that I enjoyed it uh, quite a bit. Um, whether or not I would give it the critical, like, you know, yes, no, I liked it, I loved it, um, not so much. I personally enjoyed it a lot, but objectively, I think it had some flaws. Yeah. Uh, Joseph, what did you think? Well, on, on the uh, shallowest surface of things, I think that I was satisfied because like anticipating this film i just i adored the trailer i i've enjoyed every performance from hugh jackman that i've seen to date i think he's just a phenomenal actor i enjoy russell crowe i enjoy Anne hathaway and i i thoroughly appreciated the king's speech it was one of my top two favorite films from 2011 I'll gladly watch that film time and again. I don't. I don't think I've gotten at all the slightest tired of it. But for um, Lem is Rob. <clears throat> I, I know we're not even pronouncing that that that, that name right. On no, the I show. think Lem is Rob is correct. 
No, no, no. That's yeah, how I think Americans it's actually Les Miserables. It. It's got yeah. that little well, bit okay. of that French blood. Everybody yeah. calls it Les Mis or Les Miserables. So that's that's yeah. <laughs> It's the Americanese version of Les Miserables. Um, so with this story, I have to say I'm actually more head over heels about this story than I am about the performances and the director, and even the movie. If it came up you know, significantly short, it would be difficult to not appreciate it in some part because I just love the story. So right. for me, it, I kind of view the story through rose-colored glasses, and then when I see the movie, it's kind of like I see what I want to see, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And so it's harder to be objective. But one viewing is not enough for this film. I need to see it a few more times Definitely. to really begin to appreciate what I'm actually seeing because uh, it is great, but is it really and truly profoundly great? It's uh, for me, from my point of view, I, I don't know yet. I don't think so. It definitely sweeps you into the emotion of the moment. Um, I think it really pulls you in and you, you love it even if you don't know that you love it, you know? All right. Now, Joseph, be be honest with us. Uh your man card will still be intact either way. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> did, did you cry during this film at any point? Not at all. Hmm. But I was I was actually a little disappointed by that because okay. I, I shed a tear at the very end, <clears throat> and I, and I I was kind of expecting it to be a tearjerker. Um, actually, I teared up more during other films of 2012. Uh, besides this one that I didn't think I should have. So in retrospect, I'm kind of like, well, why did that happen? <laughs> yeah. Now I, I, uh, I cry at films. I, I shed tears at films more than my wife does. Uh, and you know, I, I think it's a perfectly, uh, fine thing to do. I think it's, a, uh, I, I don't think it diminishes my manhood. Mm, uh, you're as just, long you're as, just human TJ. As long as the film is, is worthy of it. I, I I have to say I was a little disappointed too that I felt like I should have been moved a little more than I was at times, but mm-hmm. I did. There was a couple of points at which I uh, shed a couple of tears. I mean, because the, the story is moving, even if it's not executed as well as it could have been, and and that to me is really what makes this film. Uh, this you know the I, I need I would like to read the book at this point now having seen the film, but you know I'm sure the stage play is the same way, and now this film is the story is is very a very good one and i know that our 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 worldview podcast is the movieology podcast that we've just started but i can't help but talk a little bit about the worldview of this film because it is a very very christian story and and that to me uh it was a triumph of christian worldview i i don't know if anybody mm-hmm. else has anything to say on that topic redemption is yeah, redemption is the underlying key. Um, you know, the, the whole point of that the priest has bought his soul for God, and um, I've given you this second chance. Basically, you know, you take it and redeem yourself, make yourself something good. And then again, with um, I mean, all of the stars, I mean, every single one of them has a chance to kind of have that redemptive story that brings them out of out of the pit. Even if um, in in Fontaine's case, it's you know, it's the release of death she still has the opportunity to have that redemption of her daughter through the kind actions of jean valjean so the redemption is is a very big obviously underlying story yeah. um and, that, and, and 
you know, I hate to go back, but I, I really want to say something about you know, a lot of the critics were criticizing the close-ups of the facial expressions and so forth. Um, yeah, sure. Of of each of the, and I really think that the director did that on purpose. He wanted you to see into their eyes. He wants you to see the emotion coming out. He wants you to be in their body and in their soul and feel their pain. And I think he did a really good job with that. Yeah, no, I I was mostly happy with the cinematography. I've seen a lot of people complaining about that as well, and I I don't quite get that. I think mm-hmm. that it's fine. What what the only problem that I had was I felt like he brought a little bit too much of the modern style of shaky cam into it. Oh that, yeah, that bothered that. me a little bit. And uh, a little bit the swirling around and around and around. <laughs> yeah, it was a little much. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I for the most part I agree. The cinematography really was great. But you know, the as far as the themes of the story, redemption is certainly a, a major theme in the story. But not just redemption. You've got grace and mercy and law mm-hmm. i mean obviously javert kind of represents the law and then in injustice but but that has to be tempered with mercy and redemption and it really is it, it's hard for me i I'd, I'd be interested to try to get uh, michael and eric to talk about it on uh on movieology next but who knows what they'll talk about so yeah, <laughs> i really love that whole they, concept they of the, the people shut the doors you know that that the the you know whether or not you agree with the whole concept of the the red boys going out it's like well you know they they were fighting for a cause and the people kind of just turned their backs and were afraid to come out and uh that whole concept of today you know is like the the few that might stand up and say we need something this way this is how it needs to be and the people just kind of close their doors and say well i don't know if i want to mess with that right now so there there's even that concept we can tie in today as well yeah Now, there's been some discussion uh, in some of the circles that I've been around in and some people here and there that have been concerned about the prostitution in this film. And I understand the concern, but I I think that uh, when people have a problem with that scene, and I've seen people who've seen the movie have a problem with the scene, then I've seen others who are just concerned about it who haven't seen the movie, or even those who say, well, I'm not going to go because of that, but I think they're missing the point. And, yeah. and I will say that nothing about that scene, you know, I, 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 I know people are concerned about, certainly the people that I've seen talking about it are concerned about just the portrayal of that. But there's nothing about that scene in this film that is appealing in any way or that appeals yeah. to, to the carnal sense in any way. It is very disgusting and revolting. And, and it's you showing realize, that she's at the bottom. Right, this is you, the end of the rope for her. I mean, there is nothing worse than this. This fate is the end. There is nothing else. It's like once, once you're a prostitute, always a prostitute. You're hated. You're shunned. You're probably going to die either of sickness or death or you know coldness, disease. There's something's going to happen really terrible for you. I just said she was going to die of death. Right. I and, caught and, myself there. Uh, but <laughs> well, and, but and it's she, it's that portrayal. She's, she's at the end. Right, exactly. And and she did, of course, as uh, spoiler alert, uh, if uh, Fontaine dies, uh, that's that's part of the story. Uh, but but you know, right after this prostitution scene as well, we get the best performance of the film in my opinion, which is Anne Hathaway's uh, song, the star song of the film, or at least the one they were certainly mm-hmm. trumpeting. I suppose it's probably the most well known of the film. Yeah. But they were certainly pushing that song in the trailers, the uh Life has killed the dream I dreamed. Uh, I, I can't think of the exact name of it. Yeah, it's like this. It, the, the, the basic gist is, you know, there's nothing else for me. Right. Nothing left. And, and I have no. I don't even have any hopes anymore. The performance of the song too by Anne Hathaway was stunning. Absolutely stunning. I mean, she Super. needs to win some kind of an award for that. Oh, I think she is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
you, you know, and I will say too, uh, Hugh Jackman's performance uh, was incredible as well. And I didn't realize he could sing as well as he could. No, he wasn't as good as somebody who maybe is doing musicals all the time. Mm-hmm. But but as far as whether he could sing on key or whatever, but his performance and ca- capturing the nuance of yeah. the performances is so much better. And you have this is what I found interesting too. You have so much more latitude in a film like this than you do in a stage play. We're in a stage play. They have to project. They have to shout their lines out and get them out there where everybody can hear. Yep. And you didn't have any of that in the film. They can say, they can capture every little nuance. They can be quiet. They can be loud. And uh, I found that really, uh, it really moved the genre of, of this sort of musical ahead of what you can actually get. I know, I know this is sacrilege to people who like plays, but it's really yeah. far better. <laughs> but I mean, yes, I, I, I think I see, I see your point. And, and also, um, I, I think I heard that the director actually, they captured everything in live motion. So it wasn't actually dubbed or they didn't go back in the studios. It was actually what you see is what you get. Um, yes, so that was well, a, that's a pretty big thing for, for the actors. Yeah, that that was actually one of the big things, the big changes about this. Uh, Joseph, feel free to weigh in here. I know me and Liz are kind of dominating here, but uh, <laughs> um, that was Y'all one of the, talking good. Okay, that that was one of the big things uh, about this film that was different from any other musical that I am aware of. Uh, is that the way musicals are typically done, or the way music in a film at all is typically done? If you have somebody singing or whatever, is that the songs are pre-recorded, and what you're seeing in the performance is actually a lip sync to that pre-recording, and they didn't do that because this entire film is music. That they wanted to them the actors to be able to act and to be in the moment. I mean, all actors want to do that, right? And so they they uh, had the um, the guy who did the music on set lightly playing the piano. And or, or what I I saw I'll have to find it I saw a thing on how they did this and then you know they're they're capturing they're singing right on set right there and so they're able to in the moment decide how they want the character to be you know and, and if they want to have more of a musical break than what was afforded in the studio or whatever they can do that they can they can have silence and they can have all these things and it it creates a much more moving performance even if it's not quite as technically perfect it's a far better performance. Yeah. Interestingly enough, uh, Hugh Jackman, I believe right before he got um, in the X-Men uh, uh, movies, that he was in a uh, TV adaptation of Oklahoma. So that's kind of an interesting thing for his for hmm. his start there. Yeah, I'm aware that he has done some other smaller sp- uh, singing parts in other films and such, but mm-hmm. I wasn't aware of that. Well, my my wife pointed out that uh, I can't remember the exact. She had a name for the scene, but it's it's went right after he steals, and then they the guards bring him up, and and mm-hmm. the guy says, "Oh no, I gave that to him." And basically, he keeps him from getting in trouble over it, and then he has this great performance of the song, and that that is probably the second most moving part of the yes. film. And 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 when when he finds that mercy and that grace and what have I done? Kind uh, of a warring with his evil side that says, you know, you can just keep on being the bad guy, but no, he's gonna turn around and be the good guy, and kind of the the good triumphs over evil. But that performance of that song and and it's just fantastic. the way Hugh Jackman captured that it, it's it's uh, it's just stunningly good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what what else do we like about this film, Joseph? You got anything? Yeah, one of my favorite things about the film was the spectacular opening sequence. The first song by the docks where the prisoners are pulling in Mm. this massive ship into the dock. 
their song it just it totally conveyed so much about their their situation um it tied instantly um jean valjean to his his connection to um the antagonist by javert in such a just such a compelling way that i felt like they connected better at that moment than they did the entire rest of the film but it just in a very special way that was that was their greatest moment on screen together and i i thought the the effects it was probably like 95 percent on all computerized dock <laughs> of, sure. um and, and yeah and, and all these massive ships there and uh you know a very damp drab weather and it just looked like it was a massive undertaking just from a uh, you know cinematic perspective but th- i don't think i've seen as a good over-the-top epic mm-hmm. huge scale scene like that in in a, in a movie in uh, forever um it was just something unusual that you don't see come to screen like car chases they're a dime a dozen yeah but seeing you know a, a hundred prisoners pull in this massive sailing ship into the docks of an old-fashioned harbor you know during what century was the story told in uh the 17, yeah the 19th century 1800s yeah I think yeah, it was 19th century yeah yeah so yeah it was uh just uh it's a throwback just, to uh, master and commander <laughs> yeah, True, which, yeah which i'm yeah. one of the few people in the world that didn't really like master and commander but uh nevertheless <laughs> yeah now, so I, I i really appreciated that scene and um i i pretty much disliked anything and everything to do with jean, jean valjean i i would wish there could have been more of him in the film <laughs> well he like dominated the film no he didn't <laughs> not least ways during the second half that's I felt true like the fi- that's true I, I feel but i think it's the, the, the very over. yeah the the very nature of the story gets away from jean valjean during the second half yeah it does you're right I, which I was, is a generational transfer i mean he's he even you know he's saying i'm i'm releasing her to you marius and and kind of fading into the background i'm gonna go away now you know so it's it is that generational transfer of it's not all about him all the way through he does pass it on mm. yeah agreed. i agreed i will say also i i was uh impressed I, I i'm not a huge fan of amanda seyfried i was i know it's, it's cyphered nope. but i thought her performance here was fine which was surprising. Mm. Mm. Okay, good, good for you. <laughs> I'm glad you. So you didn't. <laughs> well, I I will say that she was understandably tolerable in this role. I think that if I didn't know anything else about Amanda, I would have been satisfied. But at the same time, now we're getting into my dislikes because I was actually disappointed by her representation of Cassette. Okay, and a little okay, well, bit hold, of the hold younger off on the girl. dislikes, though. Yeah. Okay. I, I dude. I, 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 wow. Another, another thing probably worth mentioning here is just how well the film conveys the sense of the progression of time. That in the timeline of the story, it could get very hairy as you're jumping around in time. Uh, I was, I was very glad that the film is pretty much exactly like the musical play itself from, from what I've been told that it's very linear. They, they don't hop around. There's no flashbacks. They don't start with Jean Valjean on his deathbed and then flash back to where he was a young man. I'm tired of movies and stories that do this all the time. And it was refreshing that they didn't try to give it a new spin on things and try to change it up a little bit. This film was trying to soak up the musical version for all it was worth. 
and I think that it far overwhelmingly um, exceeds the production values for the musical itself. Yeah, and one 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 interesting thing, and a performance that I enjoyed uh, was from Samantha Barks, who uh, actually has played mm-hmm. Eponine in a lot of stage plays. So she's they, fantastic. Yeah, and uh, she, I guess, that's what she's known for is is playing Eponine as she played here, but in stage plays. So uh, and so, not surprisingly, she did quite well <laughs> in that role. On that note, it actually makes me wonder in hindsight, I, uh, you know, because I didn't know that when I was watching the movie, I assumed that she was chosen for her likeness to Helena Bonham Carter. But I guess maybe mm. Helena was chosen for her likeness to Samantha. Yeah. And, that, you know, th- sure, a lot of the scenes involving the Tenardiers were crass, but I, I did enjoy Helena Bonham Carter. She always brings a sense of weirdness to any film she's in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so well, I, I kind of well, Liz, that. I got to hear what you think about that or about her, her <laughs> role. Well, I don't want to get into the dislikes too soon. Okay. Oh, well, if okay. I don't have any much more to talk about in the like category, how about you, Joseph? Um, I think we've said it. You know, as far as this film is concerned, you know, we're trying to weigh the balances here, and I, I think that we've justly commended this film. Let, let let me just say once once more, Hugh Jackman and Anne Hathaway, if they don't yeah. get some sort of awards for this film. It's a crime against humanity. <laughs> Liz, you have anything else on the likes? No, um, like I think you put it very aptly as uh, Anne Hathaway for sure. Um, Hugh Jackman, um, I definitely think he put forth an, an, an enormous amount of effort. I know that this was probably one of his hardest, if not the hardest, role he's ever played, and I, I know his preparation was extremely grueling. Um, yeah, I don't. I, but I, I have f- to find it. But I posted on Movie Bite recently his uh, his. Uh, he went through quite a rigorous uh, thing to, to almost, get down. Almost a and, transformation. Yeah, yeah. Kind of a kind of sounds unhealthy. The whole "don't drink water while you're exercising" thing. <laughs> yes. But um, you know, at the same time, I have to say that, and, and I'm not meaning to transition you into the dislikes here, no, but let's, you let's know, do it. I feel like he he had a very um, he had a very strong heart behind what he was what he was doing um, as far as his you know perfect musical technique he he was you know almost there about 99 percent of the time <laughs> um and and you know i feel like you know i loved it i loved his heart he definitely put something in it that um for example i would think russell crowe didn't i think russell crowe's voice sounded fantastic but i don't i didn't see the heart and the passion and the conviction that i really believe what i'm singing here um and i but i really feel like you know it's especially anne hathaway and even ebony i just feel like they really took this the star show out of the whole water just <laughs> flew it out yeah. just we really they really felt their roles um and, you know, and something I mean, along these lines, um, uh, we keep on talking about Hugh and the dedication to his craft that he brought to the table. And I think that has a lot to do with the, the marketing pieces. The featurettes, in my case anyways, have influenced my perspective on the film because, sure, I was impressed by Hugh's performance. And we have noted the stellar performance of Anne Hathaway, but I don't think it goes without saying that Anne brought to the table probably every bit as much as Hugh. Oh, I think so. And, Absolutely. And, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't convey yeah. that, that I felt that way because I think she did. Now, you know, this is actually quite a pleasurable opportunity to address acting because on Movie Bite, we've talked about acting before, and I don't want our listeners to think, oh, these guys, they're just, you know, they're just, you know, 
blathering on about the greatness of this film like everybody else does. Well, of course, that's uh, for, what we're doing, this, though, right? Right, we are. But the truth is, we <laughs> genuinely b- perceive that this film is worth it because uh, we've seen a lot of movies and we've had a lot to criticize. And we've, at least, ways in my po- uh, point of view, I have not seen two performances that deserved an Oscar or any such award like these mm-hmm. in 2012. I, I just, yeah, I think that especially Anne, um, Eaton's, you know, a, a Hugh is worth at least a nomination, but I think Anne deserves the Oscar for sure. Yeah, I would say she definitely poured her heart and soul into the role. I think maybe the only reason we're not talking about her as much is her role was, her on-screen time was shorter. Rather and short, so, yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing, which I'll get to in my criticism of the film later. Okay, well, we're into criticism now, so. Oh, okay. I say go for it. <laughs> All right. Well, um, on that note, um, my thing about Anne Hathaway and her performance, she's amazing. And her character is just deservedly treated in this film during the first half of the film. And then she you know, dies. And I don't think anybody is surprised by that. But if you don't know that already, sorry, spoiler alert. You should have been familiar with the story before the tra- this film came out. Um, the thing is, Though the film is a very good adaptation of the musical, and it's very faithful to the musical, in part ahead of even the source material of the book, it frustrates me um, in terms of a story that the best parts of this story, in my mind, are during the first half of the story, during Mm. the first half of the film adaptation, excuse me, that in the film itself, the most impactful things happen in the first you know, what, hour and a half? The things in the second hour and a half were very meaningful, and they were very heartfelt, very passionate. But the best performances, the best scenes, mm-hmm. were, and, and even the, the best songs are in the first half of this, this film. No, you're right. I, I think it did lose some steam, and that, that is one of my criticisms of the film. And I, I, I have no idea, not having seen the, the play, uh, which is, you know, I suppose supposedly a crime, according to my wife. Um, <laughs> having not seen the play or, or read the book or anything like that, I, I can't say if that's innate to the story, but it certainly did seem to lose some steam for me. Mm. I, it, particularly, I felt like we were kind of thrust into the French... Uh, now, I, and I guess it wasn't the, Fren- the French Revolution, but it was a French Revolution. We were kind of thrust into that story, kind of wondering how we got there and, and why we cared so much about that. Of course, it's sort of somewhat inescapable considering the source material and the and the times. Right. Uh, French revolutions were going on like around the clock, it seems, for that whole century. Yeah, I mean that's true, but uh, it, it was just kind of interesting. And, and you're, you're you're right. I I did enjoy the first part of the film more than the second part. But but you know that said, it was all enjoyable. My mm. my dislikes uh, they center more around the concept of the musical. Uh, I, for, for whatever, uh, whatever flame people want to throw at me for this, I feel like that the story would be better served to, for it to be a more traditional musical, uh, like in the illustration I used earlier, like the sound of music where we can still have the songs, but not every line of dialogue needs to be sung. I feel like that's where some of the impact, uh, of the emotional moments was lost on me. Uh, one of the areas where I cried uh, where I did shed a few tears was in Anne Hathaway's song. But other than that, 
uh if 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 the uh <laughs> and and, and uh, someone in the chat room says light the flame tj um <laughs> other, other than that uh, i felt like the story would have been much better served <laughs> i'm still laughing anyone have a match <laughs> um, <laughs> the story would have been much better served to have actual dramatic delivery of lines than than to have sung with with no even real music going on just the lines are just float out floated out there in, in song and i know that's like a style and a thing and it's a thing people love or whatever but i yeah. th- the story would have been so much better served and it's such a good story that i wanted to see the story better served uh, on that on that note, I want to make an observation. I, I can't say that I like it one way or the other because uh, part of me really appreciates what the film is trying to achieve by good songs all throughout. I mean, that's the nature of the musical, and so the movie, again, is just trying to be faithful to it. And it's a part of our subculture that, in, in some way, it's exploring art for art's sake. But at the same time, I think it's trying to make that art very impactful and very, uh, not just important, but also making it very special to the viewer and to the listener. So part of me respects the quality of each song in isolation. Like if I were to watch a music video of any given one of these songs, I think that it would work on its own two feet. But you're right. How... Without in, uh, any significant dialogue scenes, it feels as though, uh, it, to me, my perception of this movie reminded me of an ex- the experience of watching a silent movie, where everything is told through soundtrack when it's trying to emote something audibly, and then thrusts text up in you know caption blocks onto the screen when absolutely (laughs) imperative right so that when you force the actors to convey everything that they want to say through lyrics and you know a tune it's almost like we are watching a silent movie to me because the the soundtrack is something almost completely other i could Mm -hmm. watch i could I could watch this movie entirely with my eyes closed and I would still appreciate everything about the story purely based off of the soundtrack. But then I could also watch this movie with um, closed captioning and turn off the, the sound. Well, I and don't know I, about that because the music I is would a very be, powerful part. Right. I wouldn't be getting the exact same experience, but I would be able to appreciate the visuals a bit more and relieved by this overwhelming um, barrage of the music from beginning to end. All right. Well, Liz, us guys have had our say. Do you care to mount a defense or are you in agreement? Um, I'm, you know, I I said earlier, I'm kind of one of those people that tends to shy away from musicals. Um, To be quite honest, I appreciated the complete musical side of things over the, I'm walking through the woods and I'm suddenly going to burst into song and sing for a little while and then I'm going to stop and talk some more. Um, So I have to say that I kind of appreciate the full musical rendition of this story um, a little bit more than I would if it was 80% words and 20% song. Um, But that being said, at the same time, I really don't love the musicals um, side of things. So, you know, I'll be honest, like, as as far as I I really enjoy the movie, um, 
I, I feel like Anne, for sure, does deserve quite a bit. I think Hugh Jackman, like Joe said, at least a nomination, if not, you know, a little bit more than that. Um, but for the rest of it, I, I have to say, it just it didn't quite cut it for me. I, I almost would say about halfway through, I'd have been like, okay, I'm done. Hmm. Yeah. Well, so we don't really have anyone here on the podcast to really defend completely. <laughs> Like like my <laughs> wife might if she were here, but you know what you know what this film could have used it could have used a good intermission in the middle, and, and I think that that would have helped because w- one of the frustrations I have had with this soundtrack is that there's not many lows, genuine lows yeah, in it's all the music. High. It's all high, and it comes through in the performances so that everybody is so very passionate. Jean Valjean, his his own little plot thread is uh it becomes equals to that of um marius and that of uh fontaine and cassette and javert and all of them are just equally passionate about their story i have to disagree on the uh, javert's passion i i really was kind of disappointed let's talk about russell (laughs) crowe well uh, what i mean is is that the music is one thing I think the music is one thing, and then the performances are another. The music tells me that that Javert is just as passionate about his own little point of view of the story as anyone else is. In his um, words, but not his inflection. Right. right. He really, he really, unfortunately, he felt like he he was not comfortable singing. Um, kind of like it was outside of his his range of this is what I do. And while I felt like his voice was really good, I just I didn't feel the passion of that. I am on God's side. I am fighting for justice. I am fighting for right. I yeah. will succeed. I felt like it was a little bit more um, just just a little bland. I was See, kind I of didn't sad. Even, I didn't even think his singing was that good. But okay, so so show of hands, who has seen Gladiator? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Okay. So, yeah. Of course, right? Uh, so so me? now I can't now, even count now, how many times. Right now. Great film, right? Russell Crowe at his best, no doubt. Probably yes. his best film to date. Okay. Now who who would have looked at this film and said, huh, that's Gladiator. That's the same guy who played Gladiator. I mean, other than the look, it's not, I mean, w- what happened? Where, where, where did where did yeah. where did that Russell Crowe go? Where, but why see, I look at Gladiator. I look at Gladiator and I think it's that's kind of a little bit outside of his typical role. I mean, I've seen most of Russell Crowe's films. I've seen A Beautiful Mind. I've seen A Good Year, um, Master and Commander. You you always get a little bit of the that different, more quieter side that has a temper, but you know, generally pretty civilized. Um, I feel like Javert was a little bit more into his range of of acting capability than even Gladiator is, where he's kind of I will do whatever it takes to get there. Yeah, but but I mean, even so, looking looking and watching Gladiator, and and then watching this film, you wonder what happened to that Russell Crowe. How come he yes. couldn't bring that passion to this film? And that's, that's true. And and who knows too? I mean, perhaps his performance would have been acceptable if he wasn't next to Hugh and Anne pouring their heart and soul into it. And and Russell Crowe is obviously not pouring his heart and soul into the role. He's he's phoning it, it in, as, as they up. say. Yeah. Yes, definitely, they showed him up. Um, and and I think that's what's frustrating a little bit is is the level of passion that needed to be there in order to make his character make the most sense is is gone. It's not really there. Right. The the most unbelievable part of the film is when uh, spoiler alert. Okay, spoiler alert. Here we go. The most unbelievable <laughs> part of the film is when Javert uh, commits suicide, and you're like, 
I didn't see yeah. enough passion present for him to have committed suicide. <laughs> or at least ways. Yeah. Not just it's not just passion. You know, I don't want to overuse the word, but you, to you better describe it. You know, he was just conviction, conviction, and a great, profound sense of depression that he was truly lost and felt like he had no point of return. Now, I yeah. don't think that it was characterized that way in this movie. Yeah, I, I think by by far, uh, easily, the worst performance of this film is Russell Crowe. And, and that's shocking to me. It's surprising because I like Russell Crowe. Yeah. So it's a sadness. But, you know, to make up for it, we have uh, Daniel Huddlestone. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't, I mean, wasn't that awesome? The yes. little kid? Yes. <laughs> um, he's a little annoying. Uh, <laughs> well, I think he was supposed but, to be. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I actually seem like a flashback to the uh, the younger boys that uh, had singing roles in old Disney family films. Yes, I quite enjoyed it. You, but you yeah. found Liz, you found him annoying. I, I found him a little bit of a kind of an in your face. I'm, you know, I, I didn't find him likable, lovable. Oh, this poor little sweet boy is, you know, been killed. I, I felt kind of like, oh, good, got rid of him. I, oh, I don't know. Maybe I'm just really person. cynic. But <laughs> You're such a heartless person. You, you, as I've said on other podcasts, you have no soul. <laughs> oh, oh, wow, thanks. <laughs> no, uh, no, I mean, honestly, I, I really appreciated Aaron. Um, I don't even know. I don't have any idea how to say his last name, but um, Aaron. Uh, T-V-E-I-T. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually was really impressed with, with his character, um, the leader of the band of, of young men. Um, From I what I like- hear, he and the the others with him that were uh, in his circle of you know rebels, they, they also came from the musical stage performances. They came over. Um, they I did, definitely they have see done that. Before. I, I really was impressed with them. I really felt like of, of you know, to show for what, Russell Crowe was lacking in that show of passion and conviction and what he was doing in, in his actions. They, the boys provided, um, I guess they're not boys, they're young men, um, <laughs> showing my age here, uh, but that they really show their passion, um, their, their, you know, conviction that the cause they were fighting for, this was the right thing. They needed to do it, even mm. if no one else was staying with them. So I really felt like their conviction kind of helped to kind of outplay um, Russell Crowe's lack thereof. In, in a kind of an amazing way, and I, I really liked their. I, I liked his character a little bit more than I enjoyed the little boy running around squawking. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, you know, to each their own. I, I'm sure there's more fires being lit right now as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> Get the matches. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, all right. So, Liz, would you recommend that people see this film while it's in theaters? Definitely. Um, I think it needs it needs a big screen um, at least once. Joseph? Yes, if you have a stomach for musicals, definitely see this film in theaters. And I would say whether you have... not so... I would say whether you have a stomach for musicals or not, you should go see it. And I I don't have a stomach for musicals, but, uh, you know, I I think it's definitely worth seeing. Uh, There's there's much to like about this film. There's much more to like about it probably than to dislike. And that's coming... Again, that's coming from a guy who doesn't like musicals. So... I think it's worth watching. 
I really think it's one of those movies that that you need to see it, or you're going to be forever known as that person who didn't go watch Star Wars in the theater. You know, it's it's <laughs> kind of that's that's the movie. This is going to be the movie of 2012. You you just know that this is going to be the one that people are going to talk about in five or ten years. Is remember that great movie? So definitely feel like it's kind of a put it on your list to have checked off. Yeah, I mean it's it's not my favorite from 2012, but I can see why it'll be one of the favorites and one of the most talked mm-hmm. about for sure. Yeah, now, Joseph, I was about to ask about our star ratings. I see you've downgraded it from what you put in the in the outline earlier. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't my fault. <laughs> no, 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 no. My, my wife has nothing to do with this. Um, my, my personal frustration, the more I consider about this film, is that there is something I would genuinely change about the film if I... If I you know, I, I like to pretend that I, I would have such an, an involvement in the film. And if I, if I had a voice, you know, uh, if a movie has some, it, it has reached to the point that I can live with all of its flaws and I would be satisfied by all those flaws uh, present because the, the good parts are, you know, supersede them so effectively. I think it deserves, you know, a rating of four stars or higher. But when there is a flaw, just one particular flaw that I cannot live with, that I would so change if I could, it gets a little downgrade there. And that's something that happened in this film. And that was, it's twofold. It has in part to do with the way that the story is told by the musical and in part by the casting. My problem is Amanda Seyfried playing cassette. Uh, she, uh, okay. Like we've already mentioned here, Amanda Seyfried is not a, she's not a great actress and she's interesting, uh, mainly because her eyes are too far apart, but, <laughs> but she's, that's, she's that's interesting. Horrible. That's horrible. Uh, I, I know I'm Joe being has mean, the but... thing about eyes and how far apart they are. <laughs> well, I'm glad I don't have any physical <laughs> defects about my eyes or something. <laughs> or if I do, you certainly haven't mentioned it. Joseph, you're such a horrible person. Uh, I, I, I'm sorry, but the more I, I've seen of Amanda Seyfried, the more frustrated I am by the kind of roles that she has taken. Because, yes, she's pretty, but well, she, apparently she you plays don't think all so. these... She she's in all these strange roles or in these roles that I don't think she deserves based on her acting ability. And Cassette... It, it, it didn't feel like she was captured by Amanda because Amanda doesn't seem to be able to tell a period story. She's able to tell, um, you know, emotion, but she isn't able to 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 add life to cassette in that century, in that depressed era, in that time. Uh, and yeah, that's true. I mean, half the world was dying of cholera. You've, you know, you had hunger. You had major issues, and she kind of seems like big odd what lamb face. Wee. <laughs> yeah, and and considering her childhood and how rough it was, it's not that Cassette had a lap of luxury her entire life, so she didn't know what hardship was, and somehow yeah, Cassette was a mature adult that had somehow been, you know, sheltered from society. Uh, she was already what supposed to be about ten years old at the time that she was rescued by Jean Valjean, mm-hmm. and she had been put through the worst of it. So Cassette was not captured in a, a way to me that told me, you know, Amanda 
truly and deeply feel is is living this character out not like the other actors so if it were up to me i would have just said sorry amanda is not up to snuff we got to get in someone else uh with more conviction and seeming to live cassette the way that anne hathaway did she Mm -hmm. does not live up to any of the other leading lady roles so that's my problem and that's why i'm giving it just three and a half instead of four say so all that to say three and a half stars (laughs) that's right three three and a half and you had you had listed in the outline earlier when i looked at it four stars that's right okay because i i just the more i become aware of amanda the all right we get it we understand joseph we understand it's okay you you gonna you gonna be all right need to lie down Uh, I think I will. Okay. Goodbye, y'all. Uh, <laughs> all right, and Liz, uh, what what do you rate this film out of five stars? Um, well, first of all, I have to say it's hard to go to five stars, but um, three three and a half is is what I put down. Um, I I personally myself would give it more like a four and a half because I really did enjoy the I really did. Um, I would sit down and watch it probably four or five more times and enjoy it just as much, a little bit like I did with The Phantom of the Opera, just kind of <laughs> absorb myself in it for a few weeks. Um, but looking at it a little more objectively, I cannot give it that high. I, I have to come down um, as as I don't <clears throat> obviously dislike Amanda as much as my husband does. Um, but, you know, I was very disappointed with Russell Crowe. I was, I was expecting a lot more from him. Um I feel a little bit like they they shortchanged themselves by picking some of the the stars that they did. And while it is a big name, I just I feel like it might have been a little bit of like you know, hey, let's go see Russell Crowe sing. Um, so, so I really I have to say that in all honesty, objectively, my my star rating remains at three and a half. Yeah, mm. I have been wrestling since I've seen this movie, knowing I would have to give my star rating here on the podcast. I've been wrestling with what should I give it. Stop wrestling with yourself, TJ. It's disturbing. uh, Okay. Well, so I I, I thought four, but then, you know, I I contemplated many of the things we talked about, and I thought three, and then I thought four again, and I've kind of come down, and I actually came to this rating before you guys, before you even changed your rating, Joe. I, I, Mm. uh, I decided I think the film is worth three and a half of five stars. I, I I think that's fair, and because you two did it, I mean, I think this is the first time on, uh, I cannot remember a time on the podcast when you and I, Joseph, and, and everybody on the podcast have rated the film the same. Have we done that before? No, we haven't. This, I think is, this is a unique. new record. So I'm, <laughs> I guess I'm good on, sign. <laughs> I guess on this note, then we're also kind of suggesting that the film does not deserve a... I mean, inevitably, it will receive one, but it doesn't even, in my mind, deserve a nomination for Best Picture of the Year. The film itself, and I, no. I'm sorry. I feel like I I'm agree. being brutal to say that. I know a lot of people would object, uh, but it just doesn't seem like this can be Best of Year material. No. It's extremely well made. It just it cannot... It cannot be the best. If, it's, if, if that's what the Academy Awards decide then i'll be disappointed in their judgment yet yeah, again what is, i'm not i'd be okay with them nominating i just don't think it's worthy of receiving a best picture yeah maybe. i mean because think I, about what you have to put it up against yeah. i mean think of all the other movies it has to go up against it's kind of like well it could be nominated <laughs> yeah yeah mm-hmm. i i i see it's interesting because i feel like hugh and Anne both deserve awards but you're right i don't think the film itself deserves an award just because i think the director 
allowed himself in the casting process to cast people because of their star power and not because of that they were good for the role. I, th- I think you're right. Hmm. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm there. I'm there with you. I think that kind of wraps up our discussion on uh, uh, Les Mis. What do you guys think? Hmm. Sounds good. Liz, thanks a bunch for being on the podcast tonight, sweetie. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. All right. So, Liz, uh, do you care to share with people where they might uh, find you online should they choose to do so? Oh, boy. Find me online. I don't know. I uh, I have pseudonyms, you know. Um, no, you can find me uh, pretty much with Liberty Alliance um, and uh, on about.me slash Liz Darnell. All right. Joseph, uh, people, after uh, listening to you and all your awesomeness, they'll want to keep up with you, or may they do so? Mm, I'm on moviebyte.com, where you're at. We're talk movies, and uh, yeah, I write, I write as much as I can. It's probably once a week or so. And then I like to um, peruse the internets and talk about the things I like at my personal site, jivingjackalope.com. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Joseph Darnell, and if you want to get to me on Facebook, I've made it easy. It's just josephdarnell.com that redirects you to my profile. All right, and uh, you can find uh, the work that I do uh, creatively and websites and movies that I make and stuff. You can find that at buzzingpixelcreative.com. You can follow me on Twitter. I am TJ Draper Pro. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash TJ Draper. So be sure to also check out the show notes, uh, which will be at moviebyte.com slash mbpodcast slash 25, because you know what, Joseph? This is our 25th episode. We have turned 25. (laughs) So... All right, that's it. Next week we're going to be talking about Django Unchained. Uh, so be sure to uh, tune into that, and uh, we'll 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 tell we'll tell you all about it. Joseph's already seen it. I haven't, so he's forbidden from giving me any spoilers. So <laughs> have a great night, you you guys. Have a good Ooh, one. You too, JJ. Bye. Take Bye. care. Bye.